And it really takes the disciplined founder who, who believes in this end of one thesis that goes, oh, it is because everybody thinks this is a great idea that I should not do that. Uh, and I think if you can build the DNA into the org of building multiple products, experimenting, uh, it's a fantastic strategy. Henry, welcome to One to a Thousand Podcast. Thanks so much for joining. Uh, thanks for having me, Eric. Super excited to, to be here. So one of the things that we've gone into a few episodes of this podcast is the navigating the idea maze. You take a really talented entrepreneur, they're thinking about their next thing, they're in the on-deck phase. Um, Why don't we uh, start with your journey, uh, starting eShares and then Carta, and why don't you share a little bit about how you navigated the the idea maze, and then we'll get into general principles for, for entrepreneurs. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, a big part of it is, I think uh, a lot of founders have this idea of like, if I, I build this thing, you know, it'll be really big, uh, you know, and, and they, they can kind of imagine what it looks like when it's big, especially when people think about network effect companies, right? Which the best software companies are, are usually network effect companies of some form. And they, they imagine, hey, if everybody uses this product, like it'd be amazing. This is how it, how it works. And the part that many of them miss and is the hardest part is the, the initial wedge, right? What's the wedge that you get the first customers to, right? The, the N plus first customer is, is usually much easier. It's the, it's the first customer that, that, that's hardest to get, especially in these network effect style uh, businesses. And I think it was Chris Dixon at uh, Andreessen Horowitz that coined the term, um, come for the tool, stay for the network. And, and many of uh, founders that work on the idea go through the idea maze, think a lot about the network, uh, but they forget the first step of, of coming for the tool. And if you think about uh, Carta or eShares in the early days, uh, we, we had this intuition that if you could issue the electronic stock certificate to investors, you would create this network effect of cap tables and their shareholders. Uh, but the, the, the hard part was actually, well, how do you get the first people to do it? Uh, and the, the unlock for us was you could tell the, 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 the startup of the founder, hey, instead of paying $15,000 to your law firm uh, to manage your cap table, let us do it for you for 1000 or 500 bucks, so much cheaper. Uh, but in exchange, we have to issue these stock certificates to your investors. And they hated the idea. They did not want us to issue electronic stock certificates to their investors. They, they didn't see any value in that. Um, but, but the deal was the trade of value was I will do your cap table for one-tenth the price, but I need to tell your investors about it and make them log into Carta. Uh, and then once that got going, that became the new standard where everybody started, you know, now if you get on a Carta you, and we told them you can't issue your stock certificates to investors, they would go, what? That's crazy. You know, I have to. That's the whole point. Um, but, but, but in the early days, that was, that was not the point. And so for founders listening into that, what do you think are generalizable principles of how, or, or what are ways in which they can apply that? Like, for example, someone building something totally unrelated to, to Carta, what's a similar analogy of, hey, they, they might want to build this big thing, but actually they should start here. Or yeah, given another analogy of a business you've seen either do something similar to what you've done or, or an example of something that could be done. A lot of companies, you know, you think about like, what is the initial wedge, right? You look at like a Brex, right? The wedge was a credit card, but the vision was spend management, right? I, if I could get the credit card into the company, 
then I could I could see where all the spend goes and I could help the CFO figure out how to manage uh, the business. So the vision was this much broader uh, platform. Uh, but but Enrique was like, but but my wedge into this company was was a better credit card. And and that's how most of these things happen. It's like there's some underserved gap in the market that the founder can exploit that that nobody else uh, has seen or taken advantage of that that gives them a, a beachhead into a larger market that they can grow out of. It's a classic innovator's dilemma. You know, any founder that uh, hasn't read Innovator's Dilemma uh, should because it, it's it's a. Uh, it's really the theory of why startups exist. Every large corporation is better funded, has smarter people, uh, you know, has more resources, has more scale and distribution. They should squash every startup. Um, so why, why would a startup exist? And Innovator's Dilemma explains why that's the case. And it's, it's really because the economic model of these large companies don't allow them to exploit small wedges that exist in the world that then can be opened up. Um, and that's why founders often start, that's try to start with really big ideas, uh, struggle because once you start with big ideas, the big companies are actually working on that. What you really want is ideas that, that are start small. Uh, but then once you, you get on the, on the beach, become big ideas. Yeah. Peter Thiel has talked a lot about that, that too, picking a market and then, and then expanding the, the, the market. It's an, uh, you know, unintuitive or paradoxical idea. You, you have another sort of paradoxical idea which is, you know, there's a very standard startup advice, which is, you know, make something customers want. And, and something you've talked about in, in, in previous podcasts is, hey, if you focus on making something customers knew they want, well, then there's probably a ton of competition there. And so you want to make something customers want, but maybe don't know that they want. And so maybe, maybe unpack that, that, that principle a little bit and, and, and the how behind it, because if they're not telling you that they, they want it, how, how do you know, in fact, what, what, what they actually want? Yeah, I think that's the the real uh, difference between sort of conventional product management and, and a founder. Conventional product management is ask customers what they want, write it down uh, in a product specification, uh, and then go build that. You know, th that varies from some version of consulting to custom software to eventually productization and so on. But, you know, Steve Jobs famously never had focus groups. Um you know, he said, you know, if you ask customers what they want, you know, they'll tell you a whole bunch of stuff. But what uh, what they're really good at is telling you what their problems are, but they were really bad at telling you the solution. And so what you really want to learn from them is what are their problems? But the, the real job of the founder and what makes the founder a unique role is that you can distill these problems into a unique solution that nobody, nobody has thought of before. If it was so easy to just solve their problems and do what they told you to do, it, it, wouldn't be, <laughs> it wouldn't be a unique aberration to build a great company, right? Everybody would do it. That's not actually that, that hard or creative uh, to do. So when Paul Graham says, you know, build something people want, I, I do believe that. Like you have to build something people want. The question is, how do you figure out what they want? Uh, and I think the, the, a big part of the, the founder journey is developing a deep intuition uh, for the customer and understanding the problems that they're facing uh, and then developing a thesis of how you can uniquely solve their problem in a way that nobody's thought of before. Totally. And, and what you guys were building early on was unintuitive in some ways and, and in some ways so unintuitive that the, the venture market didn't get it, right? And he, you're hearing dozens of dozens of no's. And so t talk about what that, what you learned from that fundraising experience, either about the, the venture community in terms of how to evaluate uh, opportunities that may not seem, seem obvious 
um, but you know, it might be obvious in, in hindsight y- years later, or or just as a founder in terms of, hey, if everyone's saying no to this idea and there's you know paid to look at ideas, what does it mean about about this idea? How do I still have conviction in it? The feedback was really interesting to some extent. That one of the problems we had in raising money for this early on was that investors had the curse of of expertise in this market. You know, they understood the cap table problem, uh, and they said, "Oh, I know this problem." Uh, you know, lawyers solve it, and you know, it's not that big of a market. Uh, it's not that exciting and compelling. And so they 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 really didn't invest largely because they they thought the the uh, market was too small. And it was actually also funny. Some of the investors would say to me, they would say, oh, this is so obvious a problem, right? It's like spreadsheets you should put in software. Why hasn't anybody done it before? And there was this like weird dynamic where it seemed for some of them, it seemed so obvious that they were scared off because they thought of, there was something wrong with it, right? It was too obvious, right? Uh, it was so funny. They would ask me, why hasn't somebody done this before? And I, my response would be, I'm the least qualified person in the world to answer that because I'm the one doing it. Like you should, you should literally ask anybody else except me, you know, why? Because I think somebody should have done this before. Uh, it's a weird, it's weird that nobody has uh, and I get to be first. Uh, and so I think for us, it was really a market size problem uh, was why many of the investors passed initially. And, and I think a curse of expertise problem What I think uh, many of them probably also and I, I think we didn't quite understand is, you know, we we're also on the verge of a boom in venture capital, right? So they probably were right. Uh, if you looked at the at the world as it was when we did our seed round in 2013, uh, it was too small a market, but that was the beginning of this market expanding uh, dramatically. Uh, they also, I think what we also didn't realize is that there's a big difference between a market can be very valuable, even if it's small if you are the dominant player in it, because then you have pricing power uh, in that market. Uh, and that also helped us expand the TAM quite a bit. Uh, a third of our revenue comes out of our fund administration business. Uh, and I think that will actually continue to grow as a percentage of our revenue over time. So, so you can see us diversifying. Like We're not going to get to a billion dollars of revenue in cap tables. Uh, we're we're going to have to expand for sure. One of the other sort of unintuitive or contrarian insights embedded in Carta is this idea of turning uh, unloved service businesses into beloved software products. Uh, why don't you unpack this this strategy, uh, how it works in Carta, and how maybe other entrepreneurs can think about uh, potentially incorporating in their businesses? Yeah, I, I would say that's our uh, our playbook that we we run best. We love going after services industries that sell a commoditized uh, product differentiated only by brand. And so, so what that means is like things like cap tables. You know, in 2013, 14. Cap tables were managed by law firms. It was a ca- commodity, right? You can't manage a cap table better, right? You either do it correctly or you don't do it correctly. But there isn't, you don't pay more and you get a better cap table, right? It's either right or wrong. Uh, and once you get it right, there's no such thing as a better cap table. And so uh, it's a commodity. Uh, it's services. So it's law firms that were doing it by hand. And it's a it's only differ- differentiated by brand. You know, there's no difference between a Cooley cap table service and a, and a Wilson cap table service. It's just one's called Cooley and one's called Wilson. And so we love that because we could enter that business saying, hey, we're going to do cap table manage, management for you. And we'll start even as a service. You know, Our first employees were like paralegals doing cap table management, uh, but we'll bring software into the equation and we're differentiated. And so suddenly you're now differentiating 
in this undifferentiated market with technology and your competition as services. And that's a wonderful thing because one, uh, technology if done well can usually beat services. Uh, but also two, if the market standard is services, uh, you get to charge services prices. You know, labor is inflationary, but software is deflationary. You know, labor costs, wage costs always go up. Software prices go down. It's hard to make money because, you know, software prices keep going down because the marginal cost of software is zero. But if you're competing against software, you can charge what it costs uh, a person to do it, but you get to do it with software. And so you get to make huge amounts of money uh, doing it. So we did that with 49A. It's exactly the same thing. We saw the 49A industry. It was all services. It was 5,000 bucks of 49A. We went ahead and said, hey, we'll do your 49A. Uh, we've got 49 analysts, but ours will be better because it'll be tech enabled. We can do it faster, better, cheaper. And the comp was uh, uh, people. And so we could charge human labor rates for software costs. Uh, and then we did that in fund administration. And anytime we see these industries with high uh, labor prices that we can automate, we love going into them. How do you think about incorporation through this lens? Like a startup incorporation, like what Stripe Atlas was doing or... Yeah, we've always took the view that uh, incorporations is tough. Uh, it's a tough business uh, for, for a couple of reasons. One is you're trying to find a customer that by definition doesn't exist yet. You have to find the customer before they incorporate to get them incorporated. So you're looking for this customer that doesn't exist yet. And then when you do find this customer, you're finding them at the time that they have the least amount of money. How do you build a business on that? And everybody that tries has to figure out some way to monetize it uh, over time. So the the the, the incorporations, incorporations business is a, always a loss leader for something else, right? It could be a loss leader for legal services or registered agent services or for Stripe Atlas for credit card services. Uh, and so everybody's, you know, doing some, some form of uh, incorporation is, is the uh, tip of the spear for customer acquisition for a, a bigger business. We've thought a lot about, about doing that. Our, our view was instead of competing in that very commoditized, crowded space, we would just be the second stop. So a, a startup incorporates and then they come to Carta and that we would just partner. So we partner with Atlas, we partner with First Base, we partner with all the law firms. Uh, we don't compete with them. Uh, we don't want to compete with our own partners. We want to be the, the, the helper that after they incorporate their customer, then we can help them with the, with cap table management. So we've always stayed out of the incorporations business. Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. Is is Pave an example, the compensation tool, an example of a company that kind of followed your playbook or or a product that you you in theory could have could have, could have built? Or are there other products out there that are like, hey, they're they're following a similar playbook? I mean, somewhat adjacent or different uh, di different space. I think one of the challenges a lot of startups have in the last couple of years is. I would say Zenefits, Parker's old company, Parker from Rippling, uh, you know, his, his last company was called Zenefits, uh, started around the same time uh, we did at Carta. And we were probably the first two companies to reach a billion dollar uh, market cap uh, selling to other startups. And then Zenefits had some issues and, and I think they recently got sold. Um, uh, we were fortunate to keep going, uh, and I think we're the the only company that that really could build a you know a, a billion dollar plus business uh, selling to other startups, and I, I think that created 
this perception that you could build other B2B software businesses selling to other startups that would be really big. But I actually go back to our earlier conversation about the early investors that said, how big is the market for cap tables? What they were really saying is, how big is the market for startups, right? How, how big a company can you make selling uh, software to other startups? Because first of all, there's not that many of them that get funded. Two, they go out of business a lot. And three, they don't have a lot of money. You know, like in general, I mean, these are, you know, cash starved companies, small cash starved companies trying to make it big. And so how do you build a big business doing that? And I, I think there's a little bit of a, a challenge for these startups that said, hey, we're going to build a big company selling to other startups. And they're now starting to realize like that's actually re- <laughs> this is really hard. I, I think Carta is this very unique anomaly that we were able to build business just selling into the venture ecosystem. There's no there's no second place. Like I can't think of a, another company that's anywhere close to tens of millions in ARR just selling to other startups, they all have to get out of venture capital. But many founders don't realize that. And they're like, oh, well, if Carta can build you know, a multi-billion a dollar company uh, selling to startups, so can I. And I, I just don't think the, the math works that way. In the spirit of giving entrepreneurs other uh, you know, advice on how to pick ideas, you know, you're obviously you know, Carta's CEO th- through and through and, and, and perhaps for life. But if, if in this hypothetical universe, you could no longer be CEO Carta, and you had to pick uh, a new idea just to or a new market just to inspire other uh, other entrepreneurs out there, or give them ideas. Do you have any requests for startups or places where you'd look uh, that that could inform people who are looking for ideas? Yeah, I have a, a ton of ideas. I always tell friends this Carta thing doesn't work out. This is the next company uh, I would start. Uh, I actually wrote a a blog post a couple of years ago, three or four years ago, where I actually wrote down, I think, five ideas that I thought somebody should should build. And I, I think actually one of them inspired Pave, two others inspired a few other s- startups. And like, so the bunch of them inspired a bunch of, a bunch of companies. And then I kind of learned a little by my lesson because we decided to do some of these things, but I, I'd spawned uh, some competitors on it. So I think the challenge we have at Carta is, you know, I tell this internally to my teams. I said, you know, we've got got a lot of, you know, $20 million ideas, products, businesses that could generate 10, 10, 20, $30 million of revenue uh, over you know, a few years. The problem now at our scale is that that's a great idea for a, a seed startup. Like, you know, that'll get you going. The problem at our scale is unless we see, have line of sight to $100 million, it's not worth doing, right? It's a, it's a distraction for us, like to spend time on a 10 or $20 million idea. And so, the mental thinking for me, that's that's kind of my challenge and journey now is uh, not to get excited about 20 or $30 million ideas and get distracted, but to stay disciplined on like, I have to come up with hundred you know, plus million dollar ideas. Uh, and that's hard. Uh, it's, a, it's a whole new way of thinking at that level of scale. Um, the ideas are very different. The way you think about hundred million dollar ideas versus 10 to $20 million ideas is, is very different. Uh, and that's what I've been trying to trying to focus on for myself. Let's go deeper on that. How, how do you determine whether something, you know, sort of the the market cap for an idea, and when you know what what differentiates a twenty million dollar idea from a hundred million? Is it that you're reaching a new market, uh, sort of new customer set, or how, how do you think about hey, this one has the potential to be a hundred, this one fifty, etc. A lot of it has to do with you know market size and TAM and kind of all the the conventional stuff. But but when you think about ACV, when you think about like ACV of, a, of the product, you know, what can you get for this product? You know, a lot of these products are five, 10, 
you know, 15K ACVs. One of my investors said, uh, we were looking at an acquisition uh, and the ACV of the, the target company, I think was like five or, or 7,000 bucks. And one of my investors said, you know, it's, and I said, I, you know, I don't know if we can make this a hundred million dollar business line for us. And he goes, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to, I think he said, it's hard to feed a lion shooting squirrels or something like that. If, if your ACV on, on a customers is five to 10 K, that's going to be a $20 million business unless you can, unless you become like a massive SMB, you know, machine, you know, it's, it's possible. There's a lot of companies that do that, but you really have to figure out how to do the SMB motion. And then if you're going to, you know, try to get to, you know, 100, 200, you've got to be able to move the ACVs up for us specifically, because we only service, you know, startups and venture, we either have to improve ACV or move outside of our sector because there's a finite number of customers. You know, if you're selling to U.S. small businesses, uh, you could get away with a 5K ACV because there's, you know, 10 million of them in the United States. But if you're selling to venture, you have to move up uh, the stack. And so many of our ideas are how do we how do we move outside of venture or how do we move into higher end uh, deals. So, for example, in our in our cap table business, we're uh, you know five thousand dollar or I think we're seven thousand something like that. You know, relatively low ACV. It's a high velocity SMB business in our cap table business, but in our fund administration business, we're starting to move up market. We've got deals now in the pipe where it's two and a half million bucks, right? And that's like you have to sell a lot of cap tables uh, <laughs> to, to to earn two and a half million dollars. Uh, where in this fund admin business, you know, if we get it right, you know, one deal uh, is, is, you know, almost two months of cap table sales. I'll, I'll walk through an idea that I've been interested in, uh, see if we can apply your, your playbook. So I've been interested in this idea of, I mean, a lot of people have been interested. There's, there's a lot of information in people's heads about how good other people are. And it's, it's, it's locked in. It's not on the internet. It's, you know, it's super redundant in terms of, you know, we do all these reference checks and then we just redo them all the, all the time. And there's a lot of data leakage and people hire people they shouldn't hire and the best people don't get discovered and this, this whole thing. And so that, that's, that's the dream is that what people think of each other to some degree is, is, is on the internet. And then there's a question of like, okay, how do you get that information? And I, I've, some ways I've thought about include like a reference checks as a service business. You know, if you're hiring an executive or a GP somewhere, hey, we'll do 50 references or whatever, and then you have that data forever. Or you become a full stack recruiting firm. You, you then get the get to your point about a service business and then add software on top. And maybe you partner with other recruiting firms and say, hey, if you give you the data that you've been accumulating, you, it's a sort of give to get model. And then anything to like uh, sort of you know try to do LinkedIn endorsements, but but done well. Um, so there's different sort of layers of granularity of you know service to software. H- how might you approach this problem given your uh, your 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 vantage point? Yeah, so there's a company called ConfirmHR.com, or I think it's Confirm.com now. I think they got the domain. It was actually started by Josh Merrow, who who was an early Card employee, and uh, and it's performance management software. But the thesis there is. My performance reviews, you know, my quarterly or, you know, semi-annual performance review, is that data owned by the company or is it owned by me? And so, for example, could I take my performance reviews from my previous employer and share that with my new employer? Uh, and they could, they could read my performance reviews for the last five years of all the companies I've worked for. Or it, does it work more like a credit bureau, uh, like the FICA? where um, I don't share it, but companies can pull 
my overall performance review, just like banks can pull my overall credit history to see what kind of employee I am. It's a very profound, powerful way to think about performance. So I, I think the world you know, eventually will move there. It's fascinating that you work at a company for five years. There's all this data that's assembled about you as a, in your performance and skills as an employee, how you work with others, and then it's locked forever. And then you get your next job based on a few hours of interviewing. Uh, and nothing, nothing that you did for the last five years uh, is relevant. So I, I, I think that's uh, a, a, worthy, uh, a worthy problem to solve. So yeah, using existing data sets like, like Performance Review or there's a company called Searchlight that's trying to be the tool where people use to reference check. So if you're the tool, then maybe you get all the data, et cetera. One of the other problems with, with all that stuff, you know, we think a lot about this in, in performance reviews, we think about it in reference checks, is what, when somebody says so-and-so is good or bad, you know, whatever nuance goes into that description, how much of that is an observation of the person or the observer? In performance reviews, we call that uh, idiosyncratic manager bias. Right. When a manager says to an employee, you know, advice or review, they're good at this, not good at that, easy to work with, difficult, whatever, whatever it is. When you read that, how much of that is truly a, a reflection of the, the employee and versus how much of that is a reflection of the manager? And it is fascinating how many, you know, people, and I'm sure you know this, right, can work with the same person uh, and have very different perspectives. And and that is very it's so it's so funny. It's so normal in in everyday life, right? You have friends you like and people you don't like, <laughs> right? But the people you don't like don't universally have people that don't like them, right? They have people who like them and people don't like. It, there's no universal perspective on people, and so one of the things I always say about these 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 reference checks is. Uh, how much is signal and noise? You know, when I when I do a reference check on somebody, I actually can't tell. Am I doing a reference check on the person, or am I doing the reference check on the person I called? You know, and what that person is like. Uh, I I think it's really one of these fundamental questions um, about uh, subjective performance. Last question on markets. You guys are all about sort of this this end of one market. T talk about what you mean by that, and what advice you have for entrepreneurs to make sure that they're in a in an end of one market, or what, why that that matters, and and how to find that. When we think of end of one, what we really think about is competitive or non competitive markets. So one event means you're know, one of many competitors in the market, and competition uh, erodes profit. This is the Peter Thiel uh, uh, thesis to build a really valuable software company. You want to build a, a, a what we'll call an end of one uh, company where there's one and one winner uh, in the marketplace. Uh, because if you are the the winner uh, and there isn't competition, you have the ability to to capture more profit. You have more price price power. You you have cheaper customer acquisition, and you're able to funnel uh, those profits back to reinvesting in the business and building more product and propelling the the, the company further, rather than spending all your time you know, competing and, and fighting for mindshare. And so we, we think about that a lot where if we are going to enter a market that we think is competitive or will be competitive and we can't turn it into an end of one market, we, we just will stay out of it. We, we'd rather take a small market that we can make end of one uh, rather than go after a large market that, that's one of N. And that's actually rather counterintuitive, uh, especially from a venture perspective, because 
when venture thinks about businesses, they'll often talk about TAM and they'll say, you know, one of the most common rejection reasons founders get from BC is the TAM's not big enough, right? And so uh, startups always have to think of, you know, well, here's the TAM. This is how big the market can be. But of course, you go after bigger TAMs, there's more white space for competition. Uh, there's, and often the competitors are bigger, right? You know, like I'm going after databases, huge market, but lots of database providers, right? Very competitive. So when you think about TAM, it's, it's hard to think about small markets. Um, you, often, you often get pulled uh, to bigger markets. And then the, the second thing uh, about competition is we often pursue ideas that seem popular, right? So if that's why there's so many copycats. Everybody sees somebody doing something that's starting to work and everybody does the same thing. They clone it. And so, so we're just you know, a mimetic uh, species, like we, we copy each other, you know, you see it in fashion and, you know, style and sports and like just everything. We, 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 we try to, to copy each other and you see that in, in business. We have this natural, whenever we see something working and a lot of people get excited about it, everyone piles in and wants to do the same thing. Uh, and it really takes the disciplined founder who, who believes in this end of one thesis that goes, oh, it is because everybody thinks this is a great idea that I should not do that. And that's, that's the way we've always thought about things. Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. We've talked a lot about the idea. Let's go a little bit upstream. So when you, you've, you've talked a bit about product market fit and how do you recognize when you have product market fit or what's your favorite litmus test for, for understanding, Hey, you know, how do we get product market fit or how, how do we know if we're, if we're, we're having it? Well, my favorite story is, uh, we launched in January, 2014, by August, we'd started, you know, getting customers and we had, uh, you know, back then people still called, called in, uh, to, to, to buy things. And we had had a phone system. Uh, I, I can't remember what the phone system was, but we'd switched from one phone system to another. We misconfigured it or made some mistake where, you know, normally it would say, you know, press one to talk to sales, press two to talk to support and, and whatever. And we made it so that when you press one to talk to sales, it would just automatically hang up on you uh, rather than, than route you. And we still sold more cap tables that month than we had, had, had ever done before, which was consistent. We just kept selling more cap tables uh, every month. Um, but we didn't even know that we had done that uh, for about three weeks. And the only way we found out was somebody went through the support line and yelled at one of our support people saying, hey, I've been trying to get through to talk to a salesperson to give you my money and I can't get to anybody. You know, where are all the salespeople? And that's how we figured out that, that our phone system wasn't working. Uh, and that's when I knew we, we were onto something. When the customers are banging down the doors to get it, you, you've got something special. To, to that point, you were just mentioning uh, sales. Let, let's get into hiring a bit. What is the type of salesperson you should hire? How, how, what is your advice for thinking about, first, let's start on individuals as, as salespeople, or first, first salespeople, then we'll think about them, the exec level. So it depends uh, on what type of product and company you're building. So I'll, I'll sort of break it out into two, two types of uh, companies or startups. I'll call them innovation startups and execution uh, startups. Uh, so the innovation startup, uh, I'll, I'll throw eShares, you know, early Carta in that category, is we're, we're building something new um, the world's never had before. So when we launched in January 2014, nobody had bought CapTable software before. It, it wasn't that people had bought CapTable software 
but we had a better version of CapTable software. So, so they knew what CapTable software was. Uh, we were just coming and saying, hey, our CapTable software is better. They had never bought CapTable software before. They didn't even know what it was. They didn't know why they needed it. And a big part of the sales motion was to, to explain to them what it was and why they needed this thing that their entire life they never needed, right? They'd never bought it before. So why would I need something that I've never needed my entire life? And I would call that sort of this evangelical seller. Uh, in fact, in the early days, we didn't call them salespeople. We, we called them evangelists. Uh, and their job was really just to educate the market of what cap table software is and, and why it exists and why it's important. Uh, and, and that's like the innovation startup, right? You're, you're bringing something new to the world and you have to educate the world on, on why they need something they never had before. Contrast that to what I'll call an execution startup, which is really, they're building something new. Uh, so for example, if you're building a better database or a betting, better payroll provider, you have a new, uh, everybody's bought payroll before, everybody's bought a database they know how to buy a database. They know they need one. Your job is just to convince them that you've got a better payroll solution and a, or a better database solution. And so, so that's a much more conventional salesperson. And usually that's not a missionary. You don't necessarily have to find someone who's passionate, you know, about like in our case, cap tables, like our first salespeople are really passionate about cap tables and changing the world. You need someone that understands databases and can explain to them why this new database that you've built is better than the one that they have. And they often tend to be not evangelists, but they often tend to come from industry. Right? You hire them out of industry from another database provider. They bring a Rolodex of people that they've worked with in the past. And they're like, hey, let me go back to my customers and say, look, I've found something better in the market. And I want to explain to you why this new database that company that I've started working for is better than what I, I sold you 10 years ago. Uh, and and it's, it's a very different uh, form of, of, of sales. Why don't you talk about the the mercenary missionary uh, framework more more broadly in terms of what are the types of roles where you want a missionary and what are the types of roles where you want a mercenary? Well, in the early days, you uh, mostly want missionaries, if not only missionaries. In the early days, uh, as the company scales, it's um, harder to to attract them. Uh, you know, asymptotically, employees just want a good job, right? Like. When, when you're at Hewlett Packard and you're hiring the 130,568th employee, that person just wants a good job. They're not there for the, the mission of, of Hewlett Packard. But you know, in the early days, you want these missionaries. And then over time, you, you find people that, that want a good job. You know, we're at 2,000 employees now. We're somewhere in the middle. You know, we have people at Carta that you know, are here for, for a good job, but hopefully not that many of them. Hopefully most of them are still missionaries. And believe in, in, in what we're doing. But I, I think, you know, the, the combination of you, you do uh, always want the core group uh, of missionaries that, that understand the vision of what we're trying to accomplish and are driving the company forward. And then over time, you know, some of the roles, you know, not every role has to be a missionary. Sometimes you just, you need people that just, you know, are good at this, this job and want to have a good job and, 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 and do a good job doing it. And, and that's great too. Uh, and so I think there's this, this balancing act over time where your core group uh, of Carta employees or any, you know, large scale company, you know, you, you keep the missionaries close to you uh, as a CEO uh, and then and then the, the mercenaries start to, to fill in the gaps. That's well said. Let's go back to, to, to sales. Why don't you talk about the, the first VP of sales 
and what, what, what you're looking for there, what to avoid, how, how to do that really well? Well, our first VP of sales was Alessandro, uh, and he, he had come from um, uh, a competitor. So he kind of knew the space, um, but he was also uh, a believer. He was our head evangelist, uh, and he was fantastic. Uh, he now runs his own company uh, called Dynasty that does trust management. But but he he built uh, not only our sales motion, our sales team. He hired all the early salespeople uh, that were all believers, uh, and he trained them on on how to educate the market. and And he he effectively created the market for cap table software that that didn't exist. And if you find that you know normally that's done by the founder, and I I did a lot of that with him for the first couple of years, and and then he took the baton and ran with it. Uh, and, and that's what you're looking for as a founder is the founder, I think, always has to start with that. One of the mistakes that founders often make is they hire a head of sales too soon because they don't like doing it because a lot of founders are product founders and sales is hard. Uh, and so they, they try to outsource it as quickly as they can because they don't want to do it. But it's so important for the founder to do sales uh, early on. But once they get the motion down, it becomes repeatable then finding that person that can basically represent the founder in these sales calls and tell the same story that the founder does. Uh, that's the magic of finding your first VP of sales. Well, let's talk about execs more generally. When you're advising um, founders who are starting to build out their their exec team, what uh, what mistakes do you see them making or, or what misconceptions do you think about how to uh, how to think about you know, building an executive executive team well? Yeah, the early days, it's it's. Uh, really hard, you know, in the early stages for for building on exec team. A lot of the, you know, call it the exec team at Series A, B. You know, they're really just really good uh, employees at their functions, right? You you promote the the best engineer to to be your head of engineering. You know, you promote the the best uh, salesperson to be your head of sales. You, you promote the best you know CS person to be the head of CSM. And then over time, you start bringing in more more professional. Uh, types to 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 help scale the organization. One thing that a lot of founders run into problems with is is often the head of product, and they'll they'll bring in a head of product uh, to run product for them. Oftentimes they'll bring in that person too soon, also because most founders these days are product centric founders and they have a strong opinion on on product. And the mistake they'll make is they will bring in a product manager that they think is a vision product manager, right? There's there's sort of uh, a few different types of product managers. I'll, I'll categorize them as vision product managers, uh, which sort of are the inventors, right? The ones that kind of imagine what a product could look like. Then there's technical product managers, which often come from an engineering background that like know how to build the, the guts of a product. And then there's process product managers, uh, which sort of know how to run a product process. Uh, and just sort of manage, you know, they're more like a project management version of product manager. And inevitably what happens is the the first product person that founders should hire is either a technical product person, if it's a very technical product that can help with the guts of the product, uh, or a process product person that can just help get the product delivery org working. Uh, but inevitably what they'll do is they'll hire the vision product person. And they'll, they'll do that because they resonate with the vision product person because a lot of product founders are vision product people. Uh, so one is they'll often think they want a vision product manager because uh, that's who they resonate with. Two, they'll have a really hard time finding them because first, there are not very many of them. Two, they often become founders themselves. 
Uh, and three, the ones that are out there, uh, there's a big difference between a good one and a bad one, and they'll easily be seduced by the, the bad ones. And so they end up hiring a bad vision product founder, uh, which gets nothing done for them. Uh, and they lost six or 12 months and then they get burned on it. Uh, and what they really should do is be disciplined about saying, Hey, I own the vision. I need a technical or process driven product manager that can implement my vision. And that's their job. And that's the, the most common mistake they make on, uh, on the head of product. Well articulated. We we talked earlier about how market size is sometimes a, a limiter, and often in, in order for companies to be very big, they have to expand product lines. When is the right time to think about adding another product? Uh, I have a different perspective than most. Most most people will tell you focus on the one product, and I think that's probably right for most founders. For us, we were very quick at building new products and diversifying products. Uh, And I think if you can build the DNA into the org of building multiple products, experimenting, spinning multiple plates, uh, it's a fantastic uh, strategy. It's hard to do. So I think it it, it takes a a certain type of founder that can that can do that. But but I think for most founders, the, the conventional wisdom is the right wisdom, which is like, go deep, not broad. Uh, find the right product, work on the product that, that's, that's starting to work, get strong product market fit and make that product uh, better before you start um, distracting away from the core product uh, to, to multiple products. We're gearing up on, uh, on, on time here. Is there anything we didn't get to that you think is, uh, is interesting that you want to leave founders with as, as we think about one, uh, you know, picking the right idea or two, you know, scaling your team most, uh, most effectively as, uh, as, as once you have it? I don't think so. You covered a lot of ground. You covered almost everything I know. This is fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Um, for people who want to go deeper, uh, Henry has a fantastic uh, uh, blog and also video series on 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 YouTube. And also, you've uh, given some great podcast interviews on Invest Like the Best, Twenty Minute VC, uh, and and others. Uh, Henry, thanks so much for sharing your your learnings with us here at One to a Thousand, and uh, for being uh, supportive to to us and what we're up to. Uh, really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, super. Thank you, Eric. Really appreciate uh, you giving me some time.